stories don't define you, how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. In my work with coaching clients, I guide people to improve their communication using storytelling as the foundation of our work together. What I've realized over years of coaching and podcasting is that the majority of people don't realize the impact of the stories they share on their internal messages and on the people they're sharing them with. What really lights me up is guiding executives and uncovering the stories in their lives that are meaningful. The stories that, when shared with the right audience in the right way, connect, inspire, and motivate. Here's what a former client had to say about our work together. As a leader of leaders, I struggle with how and when to use my stories to emphasize the points my audience is looking for. It's a delicate balance between sounding like I'm bragging and delivering a message that needs to be heard. Sarah's approach to storytelling clears that obstacle so that you can deliver a clear and concise message using your stories to emphasize your points. It's truly amazing when it all comes together. Greg McDonough, Blackburn Capital Advisors and President of the Entrepreneurs' Organization of Washington, D.C. Visit elkinsconsulting.com to learn more about working with me. Welcome, Teresa Quinlan. I am so happy to be hosting you on the Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm really excited. Well, um, I'm excited because we've known each other kind of peripherally for years um, via LinkedIn, and I've been watching you and all of your work and how it's transformed over the last few years and how you're sharing it. And it just, it just lights me up every time I see your posts because they are, um, they're not preachy. You know, they, they actually tell people what they need to hear without being preachy. And I, I find that to be very um, refreshing. <laughs> you're not telling people what to do. <laughs> like Thank that. you. You know, um, I worked in L&D for a number of years. And one of the things that I had to learn early on, because I was also building our online videos, our online learning, and that meant I was the one in front of the camera. So becoming a subject matter expert, scripting it out, and then delivering it and recording myself. And I learned early on to do it in a way as if I was talking to my best friend. And that has stayed with me since. So when I produce content, that's how I produce content. As if I'm talking to my best friend, they've just presented me with what's going on in their life. And they're like, what should I do? What is this? What? And then, then I just do that. And then it turns out as, as you have commented that it resonates in that way with people, which just, that makes me feel so good. Oh, that's awesome. And it makes so much sense because there's that warmth to it. It's not me talking to strangers. It's, it's, there's a warmth and camaraderie. Like I'm in it with you. I get it. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sitting beside you in whatever you're dealing with. So I love it. Um, so I always start these recordings asking my guests to share a little something about themselves that most people don't know. And the reason I do that is I love to give our listeners some context for what they're going to hear later on in our conversation. So what do you think? You have something you can share? I do. I was 11, I think 11. I have a very hard time remembering like exact ages when I 
recall stories from when I was younger. I'm sure a psychotherapist would tell me something about that. That's important for me to know. But right now I just go, whatever. I think I was 11. And my we came home from school. So I'm one of four siblings. He came home from school. And when we uh, came into our home, you know, you do the home from school stuff. My older sibling is a year older than me. My brother is two years younger. And my younger sister is four years younger. And so we're like a mess at the front door in this small landing, but we're taking our coats off and putting our shoes in our bags and doing all that kind of stuff. And then we walk into the kitchen, say hello to the parents. And then we go over to the living room, which is very common for us because that's where we would normally then start doing any homework that was necessary. And my mom was standing there and she's like, ta-da, I brought home a piano. Everyone's going to be taking piano lessons. And nobody had expressed interest in taking piano lessons. So (laughs) it was unbeknownst to us that this was something that we were supposed to be interested in. And this is something that sort of happened quite a bit in our life that my mom was like, everyone's taking swimming lessons. The girls are going into gymnastics. (laughs) Someone's (laughs) playing baseball. Like she just like had us into stuff. Right. With four kids, it's probably, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) With four kids, probably a good thing that they were into stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, my younger sister didn't get involved, but the three of us started to get involved in piano lessons and we all went to the same piano teacher and it would be something that we would do immediately after school and my mom would drop us off we would stay there with our homework so while my two siblings were into their into their piano lesson I was doing homework when I was in my piano lesson they were doing their homework like that's just how it worked and um, this proceeded for me uh, the longest out of everyone my brother was allowed to quit I think in his second year Piano lessons, my older sister, maybe in her fourth or fifth. And since they quit, I thought, well, I guess that means I get to stop taking it as well. And my mom said, no, no, you're really quite good at it. You have to keep at it. And at first, I was like, man, that's not fair. (laughs) And then when I was earning credits in high school for this activity because there's exams associated with it. I have my grade 10 and Royal Conservatory of Music. So I could be a piano teacher if I would like to be a piano teacher. Wow. Uh, I continued to play in first year university, second year university, because I, I lived in the residence that had the conservatory and we had access to the pianos. And it has been something that for me is like a stress management tool. When I'm stressed out, sit down at the piano for 30 minutes, an hour, however long. And all of that just evaporates. And it allows me to sort of be really appreciative of sticking to something, even if in the moment it seems like it's hard and difficult and you don't really know why or that you're the only one. So it seems unfair that sometimes other people can recognize your talents and really give you the nudge that you need to to stick with it. Oh, I love that. So you play piano still. What kind of music really, is it every kind of music? I mean, there must be. No. What kind of music is it? It's all classical? All all classical. Wow. Mm -hmm. Very much classical. Like where you have to like turn multiple pages while you're playing. (laughs) Right. To get into it. Yeah. And usually now in the household, I only play when my husband and son are out of the house because it's not their favorite music. Wow. 
That is something I would never have known about you. I am so glad you shared that. I mean, as a musician, it's especially meaningful to me that you shared that. And um, maybe someday I'll get to hear you play. Nope. No. Oh, I, I think I think um, you know. In my strengths finder, I'm an activator, and the way that shows up is I get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. So, <laughs> I'm just saying that when we're together at some point, you might be convinced, you know, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> wow. So are you working on a specific piece? And is this, um, when you say you lose yourself, you get into flow, I'm sure, so that you, your head gets more cleared out so you can leave room for processing. Um, is it something, do you usually play something you know really well? Or do you start to focus on something you're learning that's more new to you? I had about a, let's see, 24 to 40, 16 year gap from being in a home or a school with a piano to not. So I didn't have a piano accessible for 16 years. So I didn't play for 16 years. And then for my 40th birthday, my mom shipped our home piano down to where I where I live. I know, pretty awesome. And uh, it was good timing because at that time, my friend, a good friend of mine, we run together three, four times per week. She had run into an injury, no pun intended, <laughs> and couldn't run like a really significant injury where she had nerve damage and was oh. going through a lot of therapy, like two years of not running. And she was a highly competitive runner. So she actually, in the first six months, dipped into this depression. And when we were chatting, I said, maybe maybe you need to pick up like a skill, like a new hobby or something that that you find some passion around. Has there been something that you wanted to learn that that could be? And she said, I've always wanted to learn how to play the piano. I'm like, Jen, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I can teach you. I mean, we hang out and this would be so great because we're missing hanging out with each other right. from learning. This would be like so great for us to do together. So she bought herself a keyboard. I had just gotten the piano and we started into lessons. And then I, and that helped really motivate me to play again more frequently. Right. So when I find myself playing more often are the songs from like my grade eight, grade nine, grade 10, like those last three grades right. of Royal Conservatory. I have the books. So I play them because some of them, are just a little easier. And I remember them. It's amazing how your fingers and your body just remembers where it's supposed Muscle to memory. go. Mm -hmm. And then there's some other ones that I didn't have as much time in that are really still quite a challenge for me. So there's that combination of I can lose myself in the flow of the music because I know it well. And then the others of it's really stretching my abilities, which is it's nice to have that as an adult. It's mm -hmm. like you're still learning. Right, right. I got a chill when you said that your friend always wanted to learn piano that just immediately sent shivers up my spine. I just, I love that. It's such perfect timing. And I, I don't believe in coincidence and, and for her to explore that at that time was perfect. It was. So I, I played flute from um, elementary school through middle school. And then when I got braces in ninth grade, I quit because I just, it was too hard to get the embouchure to move my lips over my braces to get a good sound out of my flute. And like you said, um, like your brother and sister, I, I didn't have anyone saying, just keep going, you know, you'll figure it out. You'll get your lips over the braces and then you'll get it back. And I, I kind of, I'm sad that I didn't have somebody encourage me to keep trying it. 
I don't know that I would have listened because I'm an Aries and I have a tendency to do what I want anyway. <laughs> but um, I do, I, I do remember picking it up again periodically because I always kept my flute. And just recently when COVID hit, I started playing it and um, just went through the whole book and was relearning the fingerings wow. and reading music. And it, I, it didn't take me very long, maybe four weeks to get to the end of the book and be able to get a decent sound out of my flute and remember the notes. And so I, I hear you, there's something so comforting about being able to pick it up again and, mm-hmm. and, and play something. I mean, I've been singing my whole life, but to be able to play an instrument is a totally different set of skills. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I'm so glad you shared that with me. Thank you. <laughs> so that, actually, I'm guessing that this um, is a perfect compliment to my next question, which is, um, I'd love to hear about a recent experience where you just felt joy about what you do. And the reason I get into this is um, I think these pivotal moments in our lives aren't necessarily light bulb moments, but more like things that happen on a dimmer switch. Um, but there are pieces that if you can spotlight, they can be the description for a long period of time. You can actually get into one story that defines that period of time in your life. So um, mm-hmm. I, uh, this way we can kind of get an idea. Our listeners can get an idea of what you do while at the same time hearing a story of why it brings you joy. So I have... There is a client that I'm working with right now, and we're at the tail end of our time together. And, you know, 16 sessions weekly. So we're looking at four months in the space of developing emotional intelligence, which at the foundation is first, we have to become emotionally self aware. (laughs) And sometimes that in and of itself takes four, six months for people to really understand how they create their emotional experiences and when those things show up for them and then how to manage them. And then to learn a host of EQ skills that relate to their professional and personal goals. And every single person is really unique in how we have to approach the exercises and the strategies and the what's coming first and then second and then third and then what goes together at the same time when we work together. For me, when I work with people, there isn't this set process that we start with step one, then we do step two, then it just doesn't work like that. And so 13 weeks in, we had been spending quite a bit of time Uh, working on self-regard, so sense of worthiness, knowing our strengths and talents, and being really grounded in who she is as an individual. And along that way was learning how to assert herself, because one of the things she would not do is she wouldn't stand up for herself for fear that that meant other people could say, well, you're not really I'm not going to give you what you're asking for because I think you're not worthy of that. So that fear of rejection was a really big piece of what held her back from asserting herself. But she also didn't want other people. She was stuck in the storytelling that if she stood up for herself, other people would think she's not nice. And breaking those patterns of beliefs are no matter how long you've had them, whether you're in your early 20s or you're in your 50s, it doesn't matter. They're deeply ingrained. (laughs) And breaking out of those patterns is something that 
it takes a little bit of time. So every week in working with someone, they'll report on, oh, I tried this and, and that worked really well. And I've been doing, you know, affirmations and that worked great. I tried meditating. Meditating is really hard for me. You know, they give the reports on the things that are going really well and the things they're still struggling with. Well, at the beginning of this month, we had been working on ego identification for a couple of weeks. And the week prior, I had given her an assignment to personify her ego. It's got to have a look. It sound, Your ego sounds a particular way. So who is it? Like make it a character. And in our session together, she decided, oh, I got this figured out. It's Carl is his name. Like she knew the name right out of the gates. I'm like, fantastic. How did you decide Carl? He's like that old dude that works at a bank that could care less why you're there. (laughs) And I started laughing. I'm like, that's such a great description. And he's in like the blue suit that doesn't quite fit. Like it's a little bit too big on him. And he's wearing the tie. Like he's dressed and his name takes this Carl. And he's really crotchety. And he's got like that wrinkle that he's always in a furrow. And so the practice she needed to use was every time she noticed Carl or her ego showing up and telling her, don't do this, don't do that. What are they thinking? How dare you? That she needed to use phrases like, Carl, get out of here. Or Carl, why are you ruminating in something that happened in the past? And of course, the intention behind that is as soon as you identify the ego, you remove its power over you. And then you can get much more clear on objectively what's going on and reframing a situation. So she came back after we did that exercise in session. She came back after the week. And what she said to me was, the Carl thing has totally transformed my life. And I had one of those moments, which I often get in coaching where I start to get really teary eyed (laughs) and have to hold it together. And I step back from my camera because we're in the virtual space anyways, just so they don't see me like crying. (laughs) And uh, she went on to describe that for so long, this has been the thing that was really preventing her from stepping into the fullness of who she is. Mm. And it was that kind of, I don't know if it's validation, that kind of acknowledgement of the work we've done together that for me, I'm not, I don't, I don't cry in it because I'm sad about it. I cry in it because I was there too. Like I remember when I had that moment and it literally transformed my life and everything after that was so different. How I felt about myself, how I treated other people, like it was just so different. You never returned to that other space before. I was just so happy for her. The willingness that she had to try it and actually do it and then to reap the rewards so quickly was such a moment of like, yes, this is why I do what I do. Absolutely. That confirmation. And I love that, that you describe it as it's, it's almost like that dimmer switch that I mentioned that she had to go through all of these other things before she could get to that point, because otherwise she might not recognize Carl. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and she might be able to do it to a certain extent, but, um, I I love that story for so many reasons. And one of the things that came to me is I I think many of us have been there where we had the watershed moment of, oh, this is, I knew I had something holding me back, but I couldn't pinpoint what it was. And then to be able to pinpoint, give it a name, 
Um, one of my friends, I, I recently, uh, not a coaching client, but one of my friends, when we identified what was holding her back, we realized it was grief. Mm-hmm. And um, once we identified it and I said, you need to acknowledge it when it comes up in your mind and say, this is grief and I can handle grief. I've had grief before. Mm-hmm. I know what that feels like. And I know how I know how to live in it for a little while and then be able to allow myself to let it go for a little while. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I love that. <laughs> I'm just sitting here living in it, if that's okay with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I know. So Very when you... You you had a watershed. You I'm sure you've had many of those watershed moments in your life, um, but you just said something when you said, "I've been there." I remember that feeling, that noticeable difference. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind sharing that with me? I mean, I I think our listeners and I would love to hear that story. Yeah, no, not at all. And thank you for asking. When I was twenty six. Uh, we were at a, fab, a family gathering, a family get together, and pretty much up to this point, I from like maybe age nine and onward, I was an asshole to my mother. Oh, I was so mean. I didn't like her, and I certainly behaved in that way. And as a young adult, I found myself with with her being like the worst version of who I was in essence because she pushed every single button that I had and she was the only person who pushed them mm-hmm. and so when other people saw me with her especially the first time they would have seen me with her they'd be like oh my god what is wrong with you like they would literally say that right to me friends would say that to me like what is wrong with you or in grade school people would say your mom is so awesome and not to take anything away from my mom she absolutely was. We also had a different relationship with her because she's our mother. Everyone right, knows that. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I would say things like, that's because she's not your mother. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is how she behaves when she's like with you, but she doesn't do this when she's with us. Like I would constantly say those kinds of things. So we're at this family gathering when I'm 26 and someone says to me, the first time seeing me with my mom, but they had known me for a year. And so when they saw me with my mom, they're like, oh my God, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you so mean? I've never seen you behave like this before, like ever. And I said, I know, I can't help myself. And in that, I know, (laughs) threw my hands up. I can't help myself. It's like her, and it's almost like mid-sentence that I heard it. And it wasn't the first time I said it, but it was like, I heard it for the first time. And I went, well, that's a load of BS, isn't it? Like, of course I can do something about it. I'm just choosing not to. And I was like, oh, it's like my brain exploded. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, that I hadn't even thought about that before. And needless to say, it wasn't a very restful sleep. I got up the next morning <laughs> and I went, yeah, I went immediately to the bookstore because Someone has got to know how to figure out what the heck's going on in me. And when I don't know something, I go to the bookstore. So I went to the self-help section. And um, so this is like 19, 
I'm born in 72, 26, so we're in the 90s. <clears throat> bookstores then didn't look like bookstores now. So, you know, it's a tiny little bookstore in the mall. And the self-help section was maybe two shelves, four feet wide, like not very much in there. Like every, every <laughs> right. book, yeah, every way back. Had, yeah, exactly. Binding out, face out, binding out, face out. And so I'm like scanning the shelves, trying to read the bindings and thinking the book title will tell me if it's for me or not. And one book facing outward is named Mama Drama. Oh my God. I know. Like, if the clouds could open and the sun could be shining through the roof right now, With it would just be spotlight right on that. That's what the movie would be. Yeah. I think the, the author's name is Susan McGregor. So I grab it. I'm like, oh, this sounds about right. And I start reading it. And two things jumped out in the first few pages. One, no one makes you feel anything. You choose. And then again, another like brain explosion. And two, every time you behave the way you're behaving that you don't like, you're giving away all your power. And I was like, oh, that one really motivated me. <laughs> because that sense of control or lack thereof is what I felt every single time in interactions with my mom was that I was out of control. And I didn't like that feeling. So mm -hmm. here someone was offering me that I had a choice over that. And I thought, oh, this is going to change my life. And part of what ensued in the chapters of that book was learning to identify the stuff I was telling myself, which was complete BS. And a lot of it sounded just like my mother. <laughs> so when I first named my ego, I named it Christine because it sounded just like the things that she would say to me that weren't ever true. Um, you know, it's remnants of her trauma that she was projecting forward. And so every time I heard my ego of inferiority or superiority, it sounded just like the things that she would say to me. So as soon as I had that moment of clarity of that's what that is, and started to pay attention to it and then call it out on its BS, that out of control feeling around my mom started to go away. I was much more present in moments, working really hard sometimes to manage my emotional reactions because those were deeply ingrained and on knee-jerk 10. Mm -hmm. And for about five years, I did a lot of work in managing those emotions, rewriting the narrative, practicing, 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 practicing. <laughs> and... At 33, I did a lot of practice and I felt like I'm good. I'm here. I'm setting clear boundaries. When she breaks them, I'm holding her accountable to them. She hasn't changed a bit, mm. but I've changed a lot and it's made a huge difference. And um, it really was life-changing in then experiencing any other person who did similar things that my mom did, whether workplace or per personal. Mm. Tell me you're still practicing when you see her. Always. I, I can't <sighs> let it go. I'm still, I'm still practicing. <laughs> I'm still practicing. The thing that has changed is 
um, the emotional reaction isn't the same. Like, I don't get that heightened sense of like, oh, she got the better of me. I'm like, oh, there's that thing that used to really drive me crazy. Mm -hmm. And I'm super calm. And so the practice is basically I'll practice empathy, like help me to understand where you're coming from, what you're thinking about, what you're experiencing, mom, like, what is this about for you? Because her stuff has got nothing to do with me. When she's doing those kinds of behaviors, it's really got nothing to do with me. I just happen to be in the same room with her when it's happening. And you're an easy target. I'm an easy target. Well, I used to be an easy target. Mm, Right, right. So at that 33 age, actually, I think I was, because I had my son already. And we had a family incident at my sister's place where my mom behaved really poorly to my eldest niece. So much so that my niece came running into the house crying. Um, My mom had done some very bullying behaviors. Uh, around body image and body shaming. Oh, and yes. yeah, it's it's the same stuff that we that I had experienced. Right. And so now watching it happen to my niece, I was like, oh, that's a line in the sand. You just don't cross. And I addressed it with her. And then when I had gone home, I thought, there is no way that I want my son exposed to that. And so I wrote my mom a long letter and I had expressed my growth, my feelings about her, our relationship, what I didn't want for my own child, the interaction that occurred with my niece. And I said that that won't happen and I won't have you in my life if you can't be different. And then for three years, we didn't communicate. So I ended the relationship on the promise that if she wanted to have it, she needed to do the work to be different, to show up differently. And, you know, we do these kinds of things in our life with people that we meet that we're like, I don't like that person. I don't want to be their friend. It is a lot harder for us to do when it's someone that's a family member and a really close family member, like your mother, where the world goes, oh my God, you've done what with your mother? Like, how dare you? That's your mother. And I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) Uh she's not your mother (laughs) yeah yeah like yeah yeah she is my mom which I've dropped the expectations of what that means and now it's just the expectation of who do I want to surround myself just because she's my mom doesn't mean that she gets to and then to behave like that right it doesn't give you a get out of jail free card sorry no no I've had that conversation with quite a few of my friends with mothers that have had similar things going mm-hmm. on. Um, mm-hmm. And it, the reason this, obviously most women have had some, some weirdness with their mothers. I think a mother daughter relationship is automatically difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, just like a father son relationship is automatically difficult. You have different expectations for the kids that are your same gender, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it resonates with me partly because I, I had a couple of those moments Unfortunately, it took me way longer than being 23 or 26. Um, you said you were 23, Six. 26 when that happened. Um, I did start to, to shift when I moved out of the house. Mm-hmm. My mom is very, very nice. Um, I've never experienced that kind of bullying from her, but I did experience a lot of passive aggressive behavior, which mm-hmm. I don't tolerate very well. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember my moment of, of realizing that I didn't like who I was when I was around her. 
I, I felt like I was a completely different person around her, not and regressing to a certain extent, but solidly different because I don't think I was um, mean as a kid either. Um, I'm certainly not mean as an adult, but my behavior got mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really, that story really resonated with me. And when I did realize that I didn't like who I was when she was around, I did take that control and say, oh, well, why not? And thank goodness our two sons who are grown now and my husband um, see when things are shifting because I, I do well. We have a three-day limit is what I figured out with my mother. <laughs> I have a three-day limit. Um, yeah, mine's two. I, oh, <laughs> exactly. Before I start getting mean. And yeah. I don't like myself like that. But my, my husband will notice when she's triggering me and he'll, he'll give me a cue like, Hey, you know, and it's, it has changed things so much for me with my relationship with her. So I really appreciate that you shared that story. And, and especially because it does resonate in the work that you do now. It's all part of the same thing. We have to do our own work, right? We have to do our own work before we can help anyone else. Ah, I love that. That's powerful. Yeah. We really do have to do our own work, like walking. We have to have walked the path. Um, I think what that does is it deepens our empathy for what people are experiencing. So uh, for me, it's allowed me to hold deeper and deeper and deeper space for people to express their experience as well and be comfortable in those spaces, which is sometimes can be a very challenging thing in, in the coaching space. In the development space, not so much because like you're, you're facilitating, you're giving exercises, you're taking people through stuff. But in the coaching space, for me, a lot of that is just like, hi, how are you? How are you doing today? How was your week? What's on your mind? And as soon as that happens, sometimes I don't talk for like 25, 30 minutes because there's a lot on their mind. Yeah. And once they take a breath and say, whew, I've just shared a lot of stuff. Usually I say, and what else do you have? Because sometimes there's still more in there. Yeah. And and, the and more, it's possible it's a surface stuff. That that's right. Hear. Yeah. The more in there is yeah. usually the root of it, right? You yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, what else? This is the stuff that's bothering you. Yeah. What's the real uh-huh. challenge here for you? What is it that you <laughs> exactly. really want? Yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, hmm, that wasn't what you were talking about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you mm-hmm. find, now I found in my coaching that, um, I am not the right coach for every person. And um, I have sent people, potential coaching clients to other coaches because I find that with some people, my style isn't going to resonate. I have a tendency to kind of tell it like it is and say, well, this is what you just said. Is that what you meant? Because that's what I heard. And um, I did have one coaching client say, wow, ouch. And I said, okay, um, is this okay? is this style going to be okay for you? Because if it's not, we should talk about who you can work with that has a different style from me. Cause I want her to be successful. I desperately want them to be successful. So have you found that as well? Is that something that you work through? Uh, yes, that's exactly. I couldn't have described it more eloquently than, than you have in that there's tools in my toolkit as a coach that I can hold space and listen and I can be empathetic and I can 
if today is just all about getting it out and we actually don't do anything exercise-based or practice-based, today was just a space for the person to like vent. Okay, if venting is the only thing they want to do and there's no desire to make progress, that's not a client for me. So the willingness to do the work is like a pre-criteria to like, I will want to work with you as a client. Now, their state of readiness to do that kind of work is generally shared in that first discovery meeting where Mm -hmm. we talk about like, what is it really like to work on your emotional intelligence? What is that really like? And what will be required of you? as a as a client like ready to work on that uh, i find it's necessary to be clear because otherwise we're sort of just we spin a little we don't really get anywhere we spin a little and it's frustrating for them mm-hmm. as well as it's frustrating for me so that kind of clarity at the front end is super important sometimes i've said to them i'm not sure you're ready for the kind of work yet which isn't a can or can't, it's a will or won't. So I I think you're in the won't category of you're nervous about talking about the kinds of things that you need to talk about. And that can come down to trusting someone intuitively. So I recommend for them that they meet more and more coaches. And when they find that spark of like, oh, I think this person just, then that's your person. Yes, she gets me. That when... When they say, yeah, that coach, she gets me that I'm like, oh, yes, that's what we're going for. I don't, I don't care which coach you work with. As long as you develop that self-reflection tool that can be so painful. I mean, self-reflection can be so painful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a client, I think, eloquently describe that I am the perfect blend of caring, compassion, and direct challenge. Mm. That when you least expect it, Teresa will ask you the question that you need to be asked. And it will slap you in the face and at the same time, open your heart. Like, ooh, that's uncomfortable. And oh, that's exactly what I need to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I, you know, that's the joy of coaching, I think, with people or being in those spaces with people is you see all of that on their face and in their body language in one moment. And that's enough feedback for you to know as the coach that I heard it. I like yes. I heard it. I did a I did a good job as a coach really listening between the lines, in the lines, around the lines, to the lines. <laughs> Uh Like I did a good job of listening and picking up and pushing the right thing back to them because I see it. I see it resonating in them as the right amount of discomfort. Yes, exactly. That doesn't shut them down. Uh, Yep. Boy, every, everything you say, (laughs) just hanging (laughs) on to, (laughs) I I think it's so important for us as coaches to to listen to other coaches and to talk Mm -hmm. to other coaches because um, you know, anyone can put that shingle out and mm-hmm. for listeners to choose a coach, I think it's really important for them to listen to these kinds of conversations to say, well, if I were going to get a coach, what would I be looking for? Who would, who would be the right coach for me? Because it's so different from counseling and therapy. Although the process of finding somebody to work with is the same, mm-hmm. you have to feel safe enough 
to have those hard conversations and to share when you need to share. So thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Welcome. So last story before we wrap up. Um, when was it that you decided that this was the kind of work you were driven to do? Was it, um, and uh, so at the beginning you said you were in L and D and for our listeners, that's learning and development. Um, and so when you were in learning development, maybe it was in there that you had somebody you were working with and, um, you, I, you're nodding. I can see that you already have a story in your head. So let's just cut to the chase. So like 16, 16, 17 years ago, I had a friend and colleague of mine. Uh, we would spend lots of time talking, talking about professional stuff, personal stuff, whatever. And on uh, one of our conversations, she's like, you should be a life coach. And I'm like, what's a life coach? Like at that time, it wasn't something that I was even on my radar of knowing that it existed. And she's like, it's just like someone who listens to you and then coaches you about life, like how they make their decisions and what they're deciding on. She's like, every time we have a chat, you help me in that way. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And I just sort of like dismissed it as, doesn't everyone do this sort of thing? <laughs> like, it's, it's, yeah, isn't that funny? What everybody does when they're chatting with their friend, like this is what you just do with people, right? Okay. Fast forward later when I'm like, no, that is not. <laughs> that's... <laughs> That's your thing. <laughs> right. So in learning and development, one of our primary responsibilities was leadership development. And we had discovered over a number of years that people kept coming back to some of our training stuff. And that always baffled me. And since I was the manager of the department and, you know, you have to measure your ROI. I'm like, it's not good for our ROI for people to come back to training because it doubles our cost. So I started having conversations with people that kept wanting to come back and figuring out what did, did you forget something? Was the training not effective? Was the takeaway tools, the follow-up learning, like, was it the training that was the problem? And it turned out as they would describe what prevented them from prioritizing, delegating, having difficult conversations, coaching people. It was all emotional intelligence. It was all about their emotional state getting in the way of them actually doing it. It's not that they didn't know how, it's they couldn't get over the hurdle of their emotional state to do it at all or to do it well. And so I took that information and I had already been through my own emotional intelligence assessments. I'd been reading books on it already. I'd been integrating it into the training we were building. We just hadn't done it like Technically, we're going to do emotional intelligence development. And so at that point, with one of my employees, we put together a proposal for bringing emotional intelligence into our organization for the learning and development team to become certified practitioners of the EQI and for us to use this as part of our leadership programming. Two years after we brought it in, it was going exceptionally well. Our ROI on training was fantastic. We actually dropped a lot of our training because once you taught them the EQ skills, we didn't need the training we were doing anymore. Um, so two years after bringing it in, I had basically reached the ceiling of where I was going to be able to go in this organization and needed to make the decision if I wanted to stay here and like suck it up, <laughs> which was like a no, it was like immediately. No, that's not, I don't, I'm not going to do that. That won't be good for anybody Two, go to learning and development in another company where the ceiling wasn't so low and I could do what I wanted to do. And I had that 
pit of your stomach moment that came out verbally in same shit, different pile. And then I thought, what do I love the most about what I do that I could do day in and day out because I just love doing it. And that's when that you should be a life coach experience with my friend, Michelle, like popped into my head, no happy coincidence. It popped into my head and I was like, Oh, I should just do that. Like I should just do the emotional intelligence, coaching, speaking, facilitating. Like I love that part of my job. It's my favorite part. And I should just do that. And it was literally in 30 minutes, I sketched out my business profile. I already had the certifications, the experience, the content knowledge. I just needed the business name and registration number. That's all I needed. I took my son and my husband to dinner that night. I sent my husband a text earlier in the day once I had taken my pen and paper and wrote it all out and decided. I texted him. I said, I'd like to take you and Aiden out for dinner tonight. He's like, score. (laughs) So I get them at the restaurant and I'm like, so I made a decision today. And this was my decision. And I talked them through my process. And my husband said, it's about time. I know. Awesome. Right. At every dinner time conversation, we talk about work and, you know, I would complain about things that I wasn't happy about. I would complain about a goalpost achieving and then it being moved. I'm like, damn it. Like I'm trying to get this promotion. They keep moving the goalpost. Is it me? Like, what's the problem here? Um, And my son was just like, that sounds really exciting, mom. Like you, you look like you're really excited. And at that moment, the woman in the restaurant that was um, serving us, she had come over. She's like, you guys look really happy. What just happened? And I said, oh, I just like told my son and husband about a decision I made to start my own business. And, and I told her about it. And she's like, this calls for celebration. And she brought us over dessert that was on the house. And we had this great celebration. And the next day I called up my boss and I said, I'm resigning. And that was February 8th of 2019. Wow. And March 8th, because I was a senior manager, so I gave 30 days notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, March 8th, I was I hit the ground running. Isn't that International Women's Day? Is it? It is. <laughs> March 8th. Oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's amazing. That's awesome. Well, there you have it. Wow. That is a celebration. And congratulations, by the way. Um, that's just, I love that story. Partly because when I told my younger son the story that I was, you know, giving my notice at the city and starting my new thing, he said, well, what does it look like? He was like 16. I said, what do you mean? What does it look like? He's like, you know, day to day. What's your plan? I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so hearing your son's and the husband's responses, I just love it. And Teresa, well, this is such a... Do you remember from our podcast, my strengths are maximizer achiever. So there's no way I'm talking to anybody unless I got the plan set. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, the irony is that I have no executing domain in my strengths. And so my son asking me that question was very strategic on his part. I have strategic activator, but nothing in the executing domain. And... Um, the irony is that I actually, when I when I answered him, this is what I'm going to spend the next three months doing, and then we'll see what happens after that. He was like, oh, that sounds good. I think I was more surprised that I had this in my head than he was. Mm. I was surprised that I actually 
any kind of plan. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, funny how that works. It is. I, I just love chatting with you. Can you um, just share with our audience how to get a hold of you and, and what the best way is to view your content and, and see what you're putting out there? And then just so our listeners know, all of these links and um, resources will be in the blog post associated with this podcast on elkinsconsulting.com. So go. Best way, I think, hands down is right from my website, because that's like the central holding location for everything, my email, my LinkedIn, my YouTube page. And so my website is iqeqtq.com. I-Q-E-Q-T-Q. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) My formula, IQ plus EQ equals TQ is all about elevating the emotional quotient so our intellect Mm. works better. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) I like it. That's perfect. And I will have that link. I'll also separate out the link to your YouTube channel because I think that's just such a phenomenal resource for for our listeners to, to get into and subscribe. Yeah, lots of videos, lot like yeah. 300 plus videos, emotional intelligence clips, anything mm-hmm. from parenting to personal awareness to leadership to mm-hmm. operations. Yeah, I mean, the applications for emotional intelligence are endless. So absolutely. I got lots of material. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I am uh, looking forward to another conversation with you online or offline in the near future. Thank you for having me, Sarah. You're a wonderful host. Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places. And the audiobook version is available on Google Play, and on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change, in my living room in Montana. Also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist. It's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review. And let me know that you've done it. Thank you. Thank you. Now listen to me, honey, while I say, how could you tell me that?